Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has totally lost its sense of taste and smell. And it's very, very sad as a person who enjoys food. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. I'm a little horse. And this is episode 128. I feel like as I'm saying this, I missed a joke upon something there, an opportunity to say horse, close horse. I have no idea. Anyway, I'm going to start by admitting that this episode was extremely difficult to put together. Like maybe one of the most disaster-filled projects I've worked on for a long time. First off, the timeline was really challenging, but it seemed like it could happen. Then, of course, I got COVID. I still wanted to fulfill my commitment to create this episode because I'm a person of my word, perhaps to a fault, so I proceeded forward. I totally had a fever when I recorded the conversation you're going to hear today, but fortunately, I didn't sound as stupid on the re-listen as I felt during the actual recording, so that worked out well and good to know that, you know, even with a fever, I can, you know, make it work. There were tons of technical issues with the actual recording and some other technical issues with the other pieces, but ultimately, here it is, less than 12 hours before my flight leaves for Mexico City, exactly how I did not want this to go, I'm finishing this episode when I should be packing, and I will also be breaking my promise to myself that I wouldn't work on this vacation, because I will be by mixing, uploading, etc. when we get to the hotel. I've learned a lot of valuable lessons about myself this week, that's for sure, Uh, but despite all of the technical issues and headaches and everything else that has gone into this, I'm really excited for you to hear today's episode because there are some great ideas, some great conversations, and some great people. Today, you'll meet Laura, a designer and founder of the reworked Circular Design Summit, which is happening in New York City this June. After you meet her, we're going to roll right into a conversation between myself and some of the incredible people participating in Reworked. You're going to meet Carmen Gama, the director of Circular Design at Eileen Fisher and co-founder of Make A New You'll meet Crystal Lee Early and Natalie Mumford of Three Women, a sustainable fashion brand located in Long Beach, California, and Lacey Thorne, founder of Fidgetals, a fashion resale platform that incentivizes brands and consumers into the circular economy. We're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff, including upcycling, resale, take back programs, and the value of a secondhand first way of life. I want to be clear that this is not sponsored content. It goes without saying, but I saw it as an opportunity to give more exposure to some really rad people working very hard in this space and all the cool things that they are doing. So let's get going with an intro from Laura. Hey there. My name is Laura. I am a women's wear and textile designer and consultant. I make things with people and planet at the front of mind. When I was a student, uh, I didn't fit in. Uh, I didn't really have a good context of how I could fit fashion in the world I was in in New York into who I was. So I left, I took a year off and backpacked mostly in India and Southeast Asia. 
And the first time that I felt like things were right was actually when I got lost in the mountains of northern Thailand and ended up at a woman's home. I just met, hanging out with her and her family, and ended up being for three days. And we just knitted and crocheted, going back and forth on ideas. And that's when it really all clicked for me that, you know, this this feels right. This is the capacity. This is the relationship that I want to have with fashion. And I knew that the world would be a cool place if people like this woman were able to continue doing what they were doing, you know, having craft intertwined with their daily lives, living in natural settings, connected with their creative practice. So, you know, that was my relationship with fashion. And I would eventually go on to start a women's wear line where I built a supply chain system with artisans at the heart of it. I would live for for about eight years. I lived half the, of each year in India, part of in Peru, hanging out at the loom on the floors of many friends' homes, going back and forth of design and technique experiments. And I eventually figured out a way to start my small women's wear line presenting my first collection. Got my first wholesale order from Oak. And it was small, but lucky for me, that's what small for our industry actually meant a whole lot for the artisans that I was working with. So we were able to start that way. And as seasons went on, our orders grew and continued to grow to a point where several of the artisan communities I worked with ended up fulfilling some of their dreams, expanding to build workshops so they no longer had to work inside their homes and were able to employ other artisans or buy a car or marry off a son, build a livelihood for their families. So... At that point, the supply chain was really beautiful and what was going on on that end was cool. But there was something going on that I wasn't totally conscious to at the time. And seven or eight years later, I woke up and realized that I, you know, I had focused so much time looking at the system of my supply chain and designing a really cool thing over the, on that end of things. But the rest of my business model was so traditional, so archaic, and just truly built into the fashion system. You know, I sold wholesale to retailers, followed the fashion calendar, showed 100 styles a season at trade show. And what I eventually realized was that because I had neglected to apply the same principles that I had applied to my life and the world with the artisans to the fashion system, I was participating in. There was a pro big problem on many levels, especially with the artisans. Even though we saw a lot of growth within communities I worked with, there were still problems. My intention was to collaborate with each group and hopefully sustain and grow my orders with each and every one of them long term. And as it turned out, that was not possible to do all the time. So really, you know, I realized that by participating in that system, I handed over the power to, in some, in some cases, in some instances, to a single buyer at a department store to decide what the life of a single family would be for that year, what their livelihood would look like. Um, so, you know, my main takeaway from that was, okay, apply your values that you feel so connected and strong to absolutely everything that you do. Because had I done that, I could have avoided this tough learning. And at that point, I decided to stop producing new collections and I've kind of been on this journey uh, since trying to figure out how I can do things the right way. And part of that journey was actually attending a summit at the UN, followed by partnering with Carrie Bannigan and the United Nations Conscious Fashion Campaign. At an event, we organized a little day, a single day at Soho House, uh, also with dear friend Sarah Wright. Uh, and we brought together a small group of people for a single panel conversation with some pretty inspirational humans. And something that was obvious that day was the energy in the room and the power that bring, bringing people together has. It also 
was cool to see people leave the room and engage in this conversation and with the companies that they worked for um, who hadn't engaged in these conversations before and seeing actions being taken. And that played a large role in inspiring these two days. Um, but also the, the other thing to note is, you know, I've just been asking myself, especially over these last few years, a lot of questions and how to do this right. You know, and as an individual person working on this for, you know, more than a decade, I don't have the solutions. You know, these, these last few years, we've all had time to pause and slow down. And one of the things that I realized is somebody who spent the last more than a decade trying to figure this out, trying to figure out how to do the right thing, I haven't figured it out. And I know that I've learned just one little sliver of the bigger picture. And I know, I also know that there's, other people that are working on their own piece of the bigger picture you know so we've had we have so much to learn from each other and not only that so much to gain in our aligned purpose by bringing some of these minds together um who are really a lot of them they are all thought leaders and change makers in their own right so you know some of us are working on challenges that maybe someone else in the room has already addressed you know, or there might be a bunch of us working on the same challenges as each other, where the solution lies in us coming together. You know, so my thought was that I have to figure out how to bring all these minds that are working on their own area of circularity and their own area of trying to do the right thing together into one space to try to figure this out together. So that's what these two days are about at Rework Circular Design Summit. Um, after the event, we actually also have a mission to uh, bring this conversation into more people's hands. Uh, we want to engage with others in the conversation and see where we can provide support by bridging connections in the industry. And we'll be doing that through a matchmaking program. Um, in that matchmaking program, we will be inviting you to apply share some information and we're going to be forming various types of groups, whether that's through just a, s a simple introduction, uh, which will be made by, you know, f finding two individuals that if, if introduced, if they have the potential to form a partnership that could help to propel circularity forward, we will form that introduction. Uh, another one is a mentorship matchmaking program and the last one is uh, a potential there speaks of forming some collaboratives. So bringing people together in groups um, that could help to drive solutions forward. So we will be sharing that information uh, on our Instagram page at Reworked Summit uh, eventually. And so stay tuned there. And if you're interested in partaking in that program, um, please uh, apply we would like to get uh, as many individuals that are interested in participating involved. So why don't you all go around and introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, everyone. I'm Lacey. I'm an executive MBA candidate at the Yale School of Management with a focus on sustainability. Um, and my background is a 15-year career in New York and Hong Kong. Uh, working in fast fashion and then luxury fashion as a, a designer and an artistic director, um, primarily for 
big box stores uh, where I launched celebrity clothing brands like Jennifer Lopez for Kohl's, Nicki Minaj for Sears, and uh, Adam Levine for Kmart. I had no idea Nicki Minaj did a collection for Sears. It just blew my mind. Yeah, in fact, it was like 2013, 2014. Wow. And what do you do now? Um, So based on some of the things that I witnessed in the fashion manufacturing industry, uh, I was called to pivot my career into sustainability. So I'm now working for my own uh, Web3 startup where we uh, incentivize fashion resale using blockchain technology. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Quite a career shift. Yeah. I've seen things. (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody in this pretend virtual room has seen some stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Okay. Who wants to go next? (laughs) Uh, Hi there. I'm Crystal from Three Women. I'm Natalie from Three Women. And... um, I guess Natalie and I have a kind of organic relationship, a natural relationship with um, repurposing vintage or just wearing vintage. Um, for me, I grew up at the shopping at the thrift store um, in order to, you know, showcase my style and express myself. It's also what was available to me as somebody growing up with, uh, uh, with a single mom and not a lot of money. Um, and so that grew into, uh, just a love for vintage and, um, resold for, and still for a very long time. It's been like, I don't know, 20 years or something. And, um, Natalie, and that's actually how Natalie and I met is Mm. selling vintage and on the flea market circuit. So we met selling vintage. And then, um, when I started three women, um, after a long career kind of working in government, um, I asked her to join. And at that point, we really did. I had no idea really what that meant. Um, it's just something that I, I knew I always wanted to have a, a shop and, and, and vintage is what I knew. So mm-hmm. um, making clothes from vintage textiles really came naturally. But Nat, do you want to speak more on like how we met? Yeah. So I have a science background. I was going to school for biology and always also selling on the side. I grew up going to thrift stores. So we had similar upbringings in that sense. And yeah, when we met at the flea markets, we started, you know, selling together. And then when she got the opportunity to get the shop, I was happy to jump on board and just Mm -hmm. focus on my creative opportunities Um, from being in science, it was like, I was almost tapped out. So, um, yeah. And then the shop opened, we're selling vintage first. And then soon after in the same year, this is 2018 in downtown Long Beach, um, Crystal decided to make our first piece. Right. And then our first piece was made from my family had a Chinese frozen food business in Windsor, Ontario, Canada in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So there were rice bags that were branded from Dragon Foods, and I used I made a couple jackets, and that's kind of what started it all. Amazing! Cool. I, yeah. I've totally been in your store in Long really? Beach. Really? No yeah, yeah, oh. a long time ago, but yes, cool. That's awesome. Oh, Thank amazing. you. 
I used to come to a trade show there pretty frequently at the mm. convention oh, yeah. center, and mm. uh, which I, I think that that trade show is defunct now. I think mm. that it was oh, like wow. dying, and then the pandemic sort of just like killed it completely. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, you know, there's like not a lot to do within walking distance of the convention center. <laughs> but there actually is. There's a whole a whole city, a, 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 the largest shopping district in Long Beach called East Village Arts District, where our, our shop are, and our studio space is located. But it's just there's not any marketing really from the hotels or generally the ci- or really the city of Long Beach because people stumble upon our neighborhood all the time, which is really diverse. A lot of women-owned businesses, tons of um, um, uh, just unique businesses some that have been thriving in a lot uh, for a long time and some that are, are, are new. Yeah. And a really beautiful art deco, um, neighborhood. It is. It's really beautiful. It's like when you stay in the hotel at the convention center, all you see is this horrible complex of like a forever 21 outlet and scooters. Right. So then you just walk. If you you just have to know, I am when I travel and I'm somewhere I haven't been before, I was just going to Google maps and type in vintage and see what comes up. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up over there. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's perfect. (laughs) Well, we've also been joined now by Carmen. Okay. Well, hi. Uh, Nice to meet you all. I'm Carmen Gama. I'm the director of circular design at Eileen Fisher. And I'm also the Mm. co-founder of Make a New, which is a B2B circular design uh, platform that enables companies to be part of the circular economy. Cool. Cool. Awesome. I'm sure everyone here loves Eileen Fisher. Yes. I know I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like really inspiring. So that's a great, actually a transition into the next thing I want to talk about, which was like our individual journeys from, you know, working in fashion or working in government or working in science to working in the sustainable fashion, slow fashion movement. Because I think, you know, one of the ways that we can make slow fashion more accessible to more people is to show that there are real life experiences that lead us there. And when other people hear those stories, it makes them feel more welcome and they can see themselves in those stories and say, oh, you're right. Like I am going to stop shopping at Sheen, Mm -hmm. right? So does anybody want to start first (laughs) sharing their journey? I can talk to it a bit. Um, Okay. So I was the first person hired for the Jennifer Lopez brand for Kohl's and I would fly over to Hollywood, go into the artist's home and speak with Jennifer and her team about the aesthetic of the line, talk about colors and aesthetics and silhouettes. Um, But then immediately juxtapose that very glamorous experience with uh, flying to our manufacturing facilities in mainland China. And Mm -hmm. I remember being in the factory where we were producing a unit order of 60,000 pairs of neon pink jeans for the Jennifer Lopez collection. (laughs) And I saw so many pairs of neon pink jeans, like the concept of pants just like stopped making sense in my mind. Like I was was neon pink jeans everywhere, right. At different stages Mm -hmm. of uh, completion. And it was this light bulb moment for me because it was, one style in one brand and a store that had many brands in a world that had many stores. And it was just like, Oh my God, I cannot believe that we are using our resources to create these super ugly 
very cheap <laughs> pants that people are going to wear like twice and then donate and mm-hmm. then donate them. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. When you were talking about that, that's what I was immediately picturing as the end of right? life for these neon pink pants. Mm-hmm. And it would be a very short lived life because there's not a lot of even utility in a pair of neon exactly. pink pants. And like we were selling them for like $19 and then they were going to donate <laughs> them. Right. So right. when I had the chance to move to Hong Kong, um, I got my third celebrity line launched like the day that I moved and I was like, I'm done. I'm out. And I moved to Hong Kong and started working in luxury fashion that had a better margin for better quality, right? Like nobody's Mm -hmm. throwing away like a Dior jacket. There's some level of second life value in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But who can afford a closet full of designer goods, nor would you want to maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, when I came back to the States after five years in Hong Kong, um, I became a professor at a a local university and started talking about fashion and sustainability. Uh, And that's when I came upon um, the MBA at Yale, where we um, kind of studied the business case for circular initiatives. I mean, I love that this story included hot pink jeans. <laughs> I think that's where a lot of stories begin, at least in a figurative sense, with those hot pink jeans. I, mean, I had a similar experience. It wasn't actually my company's product that pushed me over the edge, but I was sitting in the window of my office in downtown LA, and I was like, I don't know, on the seventh or eighth floor, and I could look across the street where there was another building. It was a really weird building where like, there was a place on the bottom that was like men pay to dance with women, that kind of thing. And then above it, every floor was women sewing. And it was August. It was in the high 90s in downtown LA. I was sitting in my air-conditioned office. And I could see the windows were open in that building because there was no air conditioning. And people were literally drenched with sweat in there sewing all day. And at the end of the day, I looked out and I just saw rack after rack after rack of these like one shoulder red bandage dresses going out the door, Mm -hmm. just like one after another. And once again, something that is going to have such little utility in someone's life that is going to be worn so little and get creating it was a miserable experience. So what's the value add of something like that in the world, much like like some hot pink jeans? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, What's interesting to me is that when we look at fashion resale websites like Poshmark, Real Real, Depop, that article of clothing might change hands multiple times. Like that platform might sell the same article of clothing more than once. Mm-hmm. But because the brand is not incorporated into that profit margin, brands are incentivized to create the lowest quality, cheapest garment that they can so that customers keep coming back to their source, right? Create something that is trendy and low quality, customer throws it out, then they come back to the traditional retail transaction because that's where brands get their profit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I, I can say something in regards of that, you know, it's like I've been in this world of, 
you know, take back programs and, you know, resell and like, you know, finding solutions for like our damaged inventory that we can, you know, resell. But now, mm-hmm. like lately, as I'm thinking more and, you know, how in April there was like a boom of like brands opening their resale pro- uh, programs, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. really what I'm thinking is like having a resale program does not make you circular nor <laughs> makes you sustainable, you know, especially if you're out, you know, if you're, for example, if you're a company that you're going to, um, you know, another service provider say like you deal with my resale program and I just want the profits from it. I don't see that mm-hmm. as being, you know, sustainable or like you're becoming circular. I think the actual thing that makes you circular or towards, you know, really making a change in this industry is you having a take back program and you're responsible for every single garment that comes back to you. And yes, mm-hmm. the resale is actually another revenue stream for the company, right? And right now there's no real mm-hmm. data that is proving that one resale item is substituting for a new one. You know, there's no data mm-hmm. on that. Nor I mm-hmm. think that we are there yet. But it's actually what are you doing with all of the other garments that you cannot resell? You know, are you putting them back into your system to create new garments? So that might be replacing a percentage of your new line with materials that you actually mm-hmm. are recollecting and reusing. So mm-hmm. it's it's I, I'm like beginning to stay in this like state of mind of like, hmm, what does that resell, you know, really brings to our industry? Right. Yeah, and I think Patagonia does that. Do they not? They take back their gear and they resell it or they yes. remake it? Yes, so Patagonia mm-hmm. does have like a take back program, but they do not take back everything, right? Mm-hmm. They only They're take slightly, like slightly mm-hmm. flawed garments that they can repair, um, I think, under some of their stores. But for mm-hmm. example, our Idean Fisher, we literally take back everything. You know, it can be a sock, just one yes. sock with a huge <laughs> hole. Or it can be like a brand new cashmere sweater that our customer no longer wanted. And we give them a $5, you know, like coupon that they can redeem at the store. Okay. And then we resell what we can and what we cannot resell because it's like beyond where um, we have a couple of solutions for them. But, you know, it's... It's a model that requires a lot of resources, logistics, mm-hmm. you know, knowledge. Yeah. And right. so right. that's why not everybody's doing it on their own. They're actually going through other service providers to actually do that for them. Right. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're obviously on a way smaller scale, but we're, you know, we've been around doing this since 2018 and now we're starting to get some people reach out about repairs. And we have a skilled seamstress that is like, you know, can do repairs in an excellent, excellent way. So yeah, we take everything back. If anyone reaches out, I'm like, yes, please send me photos. Um, we'll like either use another similar textile to replace it or just repair it. And um, mm-hmm. I think that's going to probably continue. And if you know we do get mm-hmm. bigger, then it's going to be like a, a separate program, a part of our business. Right. But we're already very, very sustainable in that, you know, we do a lot of custom clothing. So we know people are really invested, um, you know, at, at least sentimentally and, and also, you know, creatively they're invested in it. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's meant to be a garment you pass down to your children and so mm-hmm. on. So something you get to have forever because these textiles have already lasted, you know, some over 100 years. Right. That's what I love about thrift store shopping is that if you are buying something secondhand, 
you know that there is at least a baseline level of quality there that it's not going to like immediately disintegrate upon the first wash. <laughs> true. Yeah, you could tell. Very right? true. As you all were talking, I started to think about um, the what I'm I've been calling the fast fashionification of resale and secondarily take back programs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Carmen touched on how there isn't really a lot of profit to be made in secondhand or at least take back and upcycling mm-hmm. f- and true circularity mm-hmm. for fast fashion. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the how they've been kind of diversifying their revenue streams is by creating resale platforms. So recently, I want to say about six months ago, uh, URBN, you know, the parent company of Urban Outfitters, Mm -hmm. Free People, Anthropology, they launched a resale platform called Newly Thrift. And what struck me as most troubling to me, or maybe not even most troubling, most transparently, obviously, not a commitment to circularity, is one of the ways sellers could be paid is by taking a slightly larger payment in store credit for one of their three brands. And that just felt so transparently like we need to sell a lot more cheap new clothes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was wondering how, I mean, I know you all have very strong feelings probably about resale, but Lacey, like starting with you, like what do you, how do you talk to people about these kinds of platforms and educate them about the reality of them? Um, So, you know, In an environment where the environmental impact of fast fashion is so devastating to the the planet, right? So what we're seeing right now, the carbon emissions associated with the global fashion industry are responsible for up to 10% of annual global carbon emissions. And that's more than international flights and shipping combined, okay? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. even if we are making initiatives into a circularity space that aren't perfect, we're at least trying, right? So I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, just because something hasn't solved the problem yet that we need to like condemn the initiative, right? So, but in general, when we have Garments that have ended their use cycle for the first generation user, the first person who has purchased it, they have a couple of options, right? So you can donate it. But what is crazy with the donation cycle, uh, supply so far outpaces demand. Only Mm -hmm. 15% of donated clothes are actually recirculated into the American economy. 85% of clothing donations in the United States are offshored uh, to places like Ghana and Chile, where we have, A, completely decimated their um, textile and apparel industry with these very low-cost secondhand goods. But even there, um, supply so far outpaces demand that we end up seeing literal mountains and deserts of discarded clothing. Um, So if you Google Chile's Atacama Desert or uh, Accra, Ghana, there's so much secondhand clothing there that you can see pictures of um, the, the waste. So when we talk about fashion resale services, there is data that shows that a garment purchased secondhand 
effectively eliminates about 86% of the carbon emissions associated with new product manufacturing, right? Mm -hmm. Has there been data that associates that, A, this is reducing consumer demand or that, you know, brands are identifying this as a new revenue stream and therefore are reducing the total amount? (laughs) We're not there yet. No, definitely not. But it's better than throwing it away and it's better than donating it, right? So we're going to we're going to talk about secondhand platforms for brands in a positive light as much as we can. Mm-hmm. And so there's a couple of platforms out there. So Trove is the one that oversees the pro, the buyback programs like Patagonia. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a new one called Treat that is really interesting um, and effectively and of course <clears throat> Digitals, which is mine. Uh, I think it's, (laughs) I think it's the best. Um, but basically what we're trying to do is bring brands into the profit loop so that there is some level of incentivization for these clothing companies to stop creating garbage of clothing. (laughs) So like, no, it's true. If you can sell (laughs) the same thing multiple times and get a profit margin off of that, we know Mm -hmm. as designers that like there's an element of incentivization there. So I think that it's a good start. I I do think it's a good start. Although I do worry that people overconsume secondhand a little bit too right now, and we need to shift our habits across the board. I'm sorry, I cut you off. I think Carmen. First, I actually have a clarifying note. Like, actually, for us, the resale our resale model is pretty profitable, right? Um, mm-hmm. For I think mm-hmm. Fisher, and I I don't think I meant to say that resale is not profitable. I think resale it's like a new revenue stream for brands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that resale is a really good um, way for changing consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, the more customers mm-hmm. are jumping into resale, like buying resale items, right? They're going to get into this habit of like, well, I can start returning my garments back to, you know, either the clothing brand that I bought from or other, you know, collect reverse logistics uh, companies. So that is going to bring back, you know, that's going to save a lot of garments going straight to the landfill. Right. Uh Um, Uh And I know what you were saying, Lacey, you know, like 15 percent of the garments only get resold and the rest goes uh, to third world countries. I mean, I'm from Mexico. I was born and raised there. So where whenever I went shopping, I would love shopping in these like huge mountains of clothing that were coming basically from the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So I think resale, it's a good, it's just more that we are right now, like we at Ian Fisher, we work with Trove, right? They mm-hmm. supply, mm-hmm. they support all of our uh, renew.com website. And we also work with Tersus, who does all of our sortation and cleaning, right? So mm-hmm. we have all of these different partners that they're supporting our take back program. So I think the more there is companies and service providers like them, more companies are going to be able to jump into not just having a resale platform powered by ThreadUp, right? They're going to be probably having these on their own, right? For example, we have Recurate, right? A platform mm-hmm. that uh, sets like peer-to-peer uh, reselling in their websites, you know? So it's like we need this post-consumer supply chain that is yeah. going to allow for more companies to be part of the circular economy so we can together make a change. And, Yeah. You're totally right. You know, it's interesting because in general, brands as clothing companies, manufacturers, they're good at 
one thing, right? They're good at creating clothing and selling clothing. When we ask clothing brands to then be responsible for the second life cycle of those garments, it's honestly outside of their like scope of traditional business. Exactly. And Car- Carmen, I think you're totally right. Like as we start to see these um, like secondhand marketplace service providers, it's like in general, software as a service is called SaaS platforms. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing, what we're calling them now is Ross platforms, resale as a service um, to it, doing exactly what you're saying, like really do the the heavy lift of the logistics of what it's going to take to streamline the resale process for the consumer to make it easier for them to resale and easier for the brand to support those initiatives. Yeah. And not only that, you know, it's also because we're talking about just resale, but what about the huge percentage of garments that we cannot resell? Right. And that's Mm. actually one of the reasons why I started making you um, because throughout my years at Eileen Fisher and it's fairly new. It's a baby for me. It's like a one year old and I haven't done much of, uh, you know, marketing around it because we're just kind of like slowly building it but basically throughout my years at Eileen Fisher I saw that a lot of companies just wanted to be doing what we were doing but again going back to that you're a clothing man you know you're a clothing brand if you don't own your first life factories why would you have to own your post-consumer supply chain you know factories or systems to do that so you know that's when we say like okay we need to really offer a service mostly focusing on what to do with the non-wearable garments you know um so what does it do carmen um so yeah so basically for example a company just can come to us and be i have x amount of um unsold inventory right in my mm-hmm. warehouse and i want to do something with it or maybe it's a company that has a take back programs like i have x percentage of garments that cannot be reward like resold so mm-hmm. we sort the garments you know we and we analyze it we say like these can be you know repair you know um these can be remanufacturing meaning it can be deconstructed and sewn back together at scale right so what mm-hmm. people call it upcycling. I don't like that word, but you know, it's like we remanufacture garments at scale, or maybe you have a large volume of certain materials that can be fiber to fiber recycling to be shredded back to a fiber level and spin it in a new yarn and make new garments. So we basically just deliver a final product to the company, right? So they're just literally give us a product and we give you back a product made from your garments that cannot be resold. So that's basically what we've been doing. We work with public school. Uh, We are working with uh, small brands right now, but maybe in the future, we're just going to continue to grow. But yeah, so the whole point is like, we need not just to address the resale part of it. We need to address what we cannot resell. And that's what it's going to help us close the loop in this uh, industry. Yeah. You know, um, the H&M Foundation has an annual Global Change Award, and the 2022 winners, there were five of them. I think almost every single one of them dealt with some level of um, fiber recycling. To your mm-hmm. point, Carmen, um, so what most people m- may not know is that when you have a T-shirt and, you know, it's beyond its usable life cycle, you c- there's not very many processes right now that can actually functionally turn that t-shirt 
back into a fiber, like a yarn or a thread, like fabric that can then be remade into a new t-shirt. It's, um, but this year H&M's global change award, um, featured five different companies that are trying to figure that problem out, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, and yeah, that's the, that's really the future at scale, right? Um, mm-hmm. Here ourselves at Union Fisher, um, we we are doing fiber to fiber recycling, right? Like our T-shirts that have cotton spandex or you know like uh, silk wool, like we have partners in Guatemala, partners in, uh, in Spain, and partners in Italy that they're helping us, you know kind of bring this huge volume of inventory that we have, shred it down and make new garments from them. So where it is possible, the thing that it's it's right now kind of like fragmented is like United States is like years behind these other, uh, you know, uh, countries on chem- mm-hmm. uh, sorry mechanical recycling, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of like be shipping things around the globe <laughs> to be turning them into new. But like you were saying before, you know, we can't judge just because the system is not perfect because the more we do it, the more we're going to learn it, adapt it, change it. And, you know, economies of scale, maybe we bring that to United States. Right. And I thought that you brought up two really good points, Carmen. One was, you know, we have to be able to do these processes at scale because when we think about it, you know, we tend to, con- we tend to consider the clothing industry in terms of our own closet. Like, oh, I don't own that many clothes. But if you think about your closet in aggregate of every single person on the planet owns X number of clothing, it's a huge, uh, the, the scope of this issue is massive. And therefore the solutions associated with this problem need to be able to scale very efficiently because the second point that you brought up is that consumers have to demand it, right? The reason that we Mm -hmm. are where we're at right now is because consumers have been given solutions of low quality, uh, low cost, fast fashion, and that's, that's solving their clothing problems, right? And if we are trying to introduce uh, solutions that are less environmentally impactful, it raises the cost. And so even though any initiative to move the needle is fantastic, when we actually start talking about walking back from the edge of global warming, we need to be able to find solutions that are going to at scale work, but then consumers have to be willing to pay for any associated increase in price. Otherwise it's just, it's not a solution. So there's, there's, it's a complicated problem. Yeah. It has a lot to do with education. And I think uh, most con- a lot of consumers don't understand that concept of, you know, saving their money to buy this one piece rather than five. So. Right. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, this is something I talk about pretty regularly on on Clothes Horse, is how our perception of price has been completely skewed mm-hmm. over the past few decades. Like, to me, I can step back and say $19 for a pair of hot pink jeans and gasp. But I also know that for most people, $19 seems totally reasonable mm-hmm. for a hot pink pair of jeans. Uh, maybe because they they know that they're not going to wear them a lot, so they're calculating the 
you know, cost per wear. I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. But I do think, you know, what's to achieve true circularity, we do have to get product that is worth repairing, that we have relationships with that, you know, on our own, like with our own possessions that drive us to protect and care and repair and want to give it new life when we, it's no longer a part of our life. And unfortunately, where we are right now is that the bulk of clothing that's out there doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of valuable value past a few wears. I mean, I, I've definitely been out with someone who said like, oh, my shirt just ripped. It's no big deal. I was, I was from Forever 21. I only expected it to wear it once or twice. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, like, but it's going to sit in the landfill for like a thousand years, you know? Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. 
Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. So I, this is a question that comes up a lot. It's, it's just, it's a hot topic out there for sure, because I know that we need to change our behaviors and our relationships with our clothing, but the pushback I get constantly is slow fashion, sustainable fashion is too expensive. Mm -hmm. So therefore I'm just going to go buy from Shein. What are your responses to that? Knowing that quality is going to cost more money. Well, we've definitely learned that firsthand, you know, we've done everything independently thus far. And what I tell the average <laughs> consumer is, you know, you don't have to buy from us. You can go to a thrift store, at least in the U.S., we have that and that is accessible. That's what we did. You know, you might have to take a little more time, but there's something there for everyone and it's going to be cheap. Um and, and then it goes down to education. So it takes time to educate someone to understand that their money um, can be spent in a, maybe a larger way for a piece that'll last them a long time that is maybe means something more to them too. Yeah. For, uh, for us, it's a, it's, a it's a totally different approach. You know, it's a very like a gentle kind of intimate approach. And we have the privilege mm -hmm. of being able to like, um, you know, people all the time, like at the Rose Bowl flea market, they, they, they can be taken aback by the price, but they're very much, um, um, moved by the artistry. And then this, the, the way that our garments are put together and, and they can tell its quality. And so they're interested in hearing the story. So I think it's, it's storytelling. Um, and it's having the right people tell, I mean, tell the story that, that people can relate to. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. On a human um, level. I can talk also a little bit about the incentivization model. So mm -hmm. um, 
When I started researching kind of how consumers are incentivized into certain behaviors, I uh, came upon uh, blockchain technology and read an article in Rolling Stone magazine where music bands were putting their albums out as what are called NFTs on the blockchain. And Mm -hmm. through smart contract technology, what happens when that music album gets resold multiple times, the smart contract auto triggers a royalty commission back to the band. And I was like, Mm. huh, I wonder if we could use that technology to do the same thing in the clothing industry. So what my startup does is we physically tether every individual fashion garment to an NFT. And rather than it being like a cartoon picture of an ape, like most NFTs are right now, um, <laughs> it is, uh, it's a picture of the clothing, kind of like what you would see on a traditional e-commerce platform, like pictures on the model video, it has care description, measurements, all that stuff. So that when the person buys that NFT initially, it comes with the physical clothing item. You are able to add pictures and videos of your individual experience onto that NFT digital asset. So if you are a celebrity or an influencer or you lead like an interesting like niche lifestyle, there is some level of value add to kind of the the provenance and the the nostalgia associated with like this particular dress or this particular handbag has been to Paris and I carried it through the streets of New York and here's the pictures and videos of me doing that. And then when I'm ready to sell that garment, rather than me, you know, laying it down, taking a picture, having to write the description myself, all I have to do is go into my NFT wallet and hit resell and it uploads to the brand's, um, existing e-commerce website. So where our business model is where we license our API technology to effectively extend a brand's existing e-commerce website into like a portion that is like this verified resale marketplace. And then, yeah, every time it gets resold, that smart contract auto triggers a royalty commission, not only back to the manufacturer, but every person who has ever claimed that digital asset into their wallet gets a portion of the proceeds as well. Interesting. And the thought process behind this is what happens when brands and consumers anticipate future royalties on their clothing choices? Brands are going to create garments that last beyond the first generation user because they want to get that margin multiple times And consumers are going to invest in quality items, take good custodial care of those items, and then resell them into a community of people that are going to maintain uh, that particular item in circulation. So that's kind of where we're we're headed with uh, the startup. Interesting. I do love, you touched on something there that I... I think is like a pleasant side effect effect of resale and a lot of these brands beginning to offer resale of their brands specifically yeah. is that it incentivizes caring for your clothing, mm-hmm. which sounds 
like a very obvious thing, Uh but it is unfortunately not. I mean, most people don't have laundry skills. Mm -hmm. Most people don't understand, or I mean, they don't have the space or the time or the energy to hand wash and line dry or lay flat. Um, And to be honest, we've all become so accustomed to clothes just sort of washing and falling apart that we just shrug our shoulders and move on to the next item, Mm -hmm. right? So I've noticed that the brands that I see with the most thriving resale communities, whether it's actually owned by the brand itself, like via Treat or how Eileen Fisher works, or if people are reselling like in community groups on Facebook, Uh which is really common as well, that these are brands that people love so much and they are so committed to treating it properly. I just read a 20-minute essay about how to care for the sleeves on your selkie dress so it's good for resale and i i love hearing that because that's especially when we're talking about maybe younger people not something that a lot of us are thinking about or have been raised with or um and i like that a lot of people who invest in these brands like really look at them as investment pieces are treating them as an investment. Like you wouldn't buy your house and then never clean or repair Mm. it because it would be one of the most expensive things you've owned. And I do think that both a combination of loving the brand and knowing that you invested some cash into that garment Mm. motivates you to care for it. Right. I mean, when I, when I went from fast fashion in New York to luxury fashion in Hong Kong, again, it was this light bulb moment that said, oh, wow, there are clothing brands out here that are creating garments not to end up in the garbage, right? But <laughs> what an what idea, concept, right? I, but yeah. in, that, in that time in my career, you know, I had been in New York for 10 years working with like Kohl's and Sears and Kmart. So, you know, it was, it was really eye-opening and it was like, okay, well, like, how do we, how do we kind of scale that incentivization model for people who can't or don't want to buy luxury items. And I think that the, the most straightforward way is incentivizing them into a resale profit model that rewards their choices. And it's, and it's possible now with the technology that we have, it's really exciting. So speaking of investment pieces, I've always thought of Eileen Fisher as an investment, and I see that those garments really hold their value on the resale market, unlike a lot of other things where if if someone can sell it for $5, it's a lucky day. And Carmen, I was wondering, you know, do you, have you seen evidence that your customers really look at the clothing as a long-term investment with resale value when they're purchasing? I mean, we don't have real data on that, but what we do have is customers that they're extremely loyal that actually, mm-hmm. because, so I'm going to say that. Yes. Yeah, so our customer is extremely loyal, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we get about 20,000 garments a month back from them. You know? Wow. Because, I know. It's, that blew my yeah. mind. I thought maybe 2,000. No, 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 like 20,000. <laughs> you know, we produce around 2 million garments per year. So we still get okay. a very small fraction of garments in comparison to what we produce. But where I'm going here is that our customer uh, returns garments that they 
they're sometimes 30 plus years old. And these garments are in still perfect condition that we can put back into the system to be resolved, right? So also the reason why we get so many garments is because our customer has a lot of Eileen Fisher in their closets, right? Mm -hmm. So one person can return five, 10 pieces. And actually we just did a test, like we, in a whole weekend, we did double rewards. We got close to 50,000 garments in just two days. That was just insane. We were not waiting to write down that huge of a check, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it proved that, you know, they're still coming back to us. But You know, so I don't have like actual data on that. But I wanted to mention also something else is that, you know, the $5 coupon is beginning not to be enough. And that's why we did that test, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's a lot more platforms that they're easier for our customers to go there and get a lot more money for Mm -hmm. their cashmere sweater than $5, right? So Mm -hmm. we're really like looking internally how we what is the second life of incentivizing, you know, our customers to bring back their garments? But I don't actually know if I a hundred percent answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you did. I think you did. I think I, I assumed just with my, my own experience with Eileen Fisher, that people absolutely were looking at those pieces as long-term investments and not just something they were going to wear for their birthday weekend. So that was what I suspected, but I was thinking, um, Crystal and Natalie, mm-hmm. you know, you are actually like working with customers IRL on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Do you give them any sort of advice or education around how to make their garments last? Oh yeah, absolutely. So we have like a little printout or I'll say it verbally, um, for garment care. And what we use is uh, natural fibers. We don't ever buy secondhand like poly or synthetics. Uh, most of what we use, the majority, like 90% is cotton. Mm-hmm. So, and the textiles we use, you know, and from the experience we've had so far, we know how to wash them ourselves. Everything we put out is washed and tested. And if it's, you know, if it color bleeds, then we're probably just going to use it maybe for like a scrap patchwork project. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, there's certain steps you can take, right? Uh, don't mm-hmm. wash as often. It's Mm -hmm. not necessary unless you do have like underarm stains or whatever, Um, spot treatment, um, hand washing, dryers are a big, you know, uh, contributor (laughs) to messing up clothes. So um, sun cleaning, uh, vinegar, white distilled vinegar is your friend. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, and I think um, I'd say that all of our customers and I think Crystal would agree, really want to know, like, they'll be like, Hey, like I didn't really like understand how to do this. So like, how, how can I make this last longer? They really care for them. And they really like, you could tell they, they feel like they're special Mm -hmm. and they, they want them to last forever. Um, We've received many like sweet comments, just people saying, you know, Oh, I'm going to give this to my daughter someday or whatever. So yeah, I love that. It's lovely. It's lovely. And then I think, I mean, right there, you know, that's that's not a mindset that many people have had for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. would say that the bulk of my clothes, probably in the 90-something percentile, are secondhand with a big percentage of them being thrifted or bought mm-hmm. on like eBay or Depop or Poshmark. And that wasn't always that way. Like working in the fashion industry, and I'm sure 
some of you have had this experience too. There's a lot of pressure, especially where I was working in buying, to always have a new outfit. Mm. And so you're always buying tons of new clothes. You build absolutely no relationship with them. They're fleeting, in and out. I, I've always been a big fan of reselling my clothes even before online resale was an option because I am, I don't know, I'm very like cheap like that in a weird way. So, so I would always care for my clothes. Like, listen, if I want to get anything for this at the Buffalo Exchange, like I'm going to hand wash this, you know, but I still had these clothes knowing that they weren't going to be around for a very long time. And ultimately, I can't even remember all of those clothes because their time in my life was so short, mm. yet I can go to my closet and find things that I've had for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I think the fast fashion industry, the living in this fast fashion era has really changed how we look at clothing as a temporary part of our lives. So there's just not a lot of commitment to what happens next. I've been thrifting, honestly, since the 90s, and it's been wild to witness the change in quality as the decades have gone on because back then the stuff that was in the thrift stores was from 10 or 15 years prior and it had the you know u.s made made in u.s textiles association um union label and the the weight of the clothing and the quality of the fabric was just it was there it might have been kind of an offbeat silhouette, but you know, mm-hmm. I liked it. I thought it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> you go into Buffalo Exchange or a thrift store or, you know, any one of these like low level consignment shops now, it's literally rags on hangers. Ugh, it is such low quality. Everything is wrinkled. You know, you hold it up to the light, you can look through it. It's ridiculous. Re- ridiculous. And it's such a shame because it used to be different. I swear it used to be different. Oh, totally different. I mean, one of the dresses that I've had for about 20 years is from Forever 21. Because even in like 2002, Mm -hmm. Forever 21 was better quality than it was by 2010. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, having worked on the buying side and seeing this all play out in front of me, you know, we were subbing out fabrics. We were subbing Same. out trims for something cheaper, right? Just, I mean, you had to hit an even sharper price point than me. Yeah. So I'm sure you've got some story. I mean, I've got stories, but I bet you've got some even wilder stories. And so ultimately, like, you know, I worked with all these incredible, creative, smart people in design, mm-hmm. But their true vision never came to life mm-hmm. ever, mm-hmm. which must be a incredibly demoralizing place to be when you're a creative person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder how we, how does the industry reverse course on that and go back to making product that you could buy in the thrift store 10, 20, 30 years from now and still think it's amazing? I think quality and, and really... I think the company has to trust their designer's artistic skills, give some more creative freedom. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I think it's just quality, just firsthand looks and, and yeah. I mean, I think the word should in the fashion industry can be a dangerously slippery slope <laughs> because, Absolutely. you know, if, if the JLo collection, for example, we had super tight margins. We cut corners on fabric quality. It looked good in pictures. And then you went into the store and touched it. And I remember at the uh. launch, my mom was like, 
what is this? Like, this is not what I was expecting. And it took me, it, it was like a, it was like a thud, you know, like I was putting stuff out there that the primary intention was a photo op. But when you actually mm-hmm. touched it, it was rough or scratchy or see-through or just, you know, garbage. Poor fitting. But here's the thing. If we start using the word should, then Sheen is going to do it or Forever 21 is going to do it. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's not like these fashion brands are out there altruistically figuring out their business model. They respond to customer demand. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think Absolutely. the demand, you know, should be shifting towards secondhand. The vintage industry is massive. I mean, we're, we've been in it for a long time. And, and in our opinion, the thrift stores have changed over the years because there's more pickers. And these, these people, these vintage dealers are single-handedly creating this industry, um, you know, curating, getting in the thrift store, getting all those good quality items out of there and then reselling them. That's, I think, in my opinion, there's less out there because there's more pickers and more people going in. So it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You definitely see the, the, you know, Forever 21 slowly migrating in there. And now all these new fast fashion companies, you see that in the thrift store for sure. I always say go to the independent thrift stores because Mm -hmm. Goodwills and all these more corporate companies are going to buy out some of those like, you know, larger retailers and there's going to be a larger percentage in the store of Mm -hmm. fast fashion, but it's there and there's more than enough for everyone. There's more than enough quality items still out there. Um, Not just a thrift store either. You can go to estate sales, flea markets, swap meets, garage sales. Yeah. And we just hosted a clothing swap for Earth Day and that was really, really brought people together. We had such a good um, feedback from that experience. Um, people want to just do it again and again. So hosting that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that was our first time doing that. And it was really cool to see everyone bought, oh, you know, it was a 10 item max and they bought, brought their like, you know, high quality items that oh, they're like, Oh, I think idea. I'll give this up, you know, and someone else might like it. There was, mm-hmm. you know, crazy stuff in there. Really, really cool things like vintage and even designer. So Amazing. I love the idea of limiting the amount of pieces that you can bring. Cause Mm -hmm. like when, when we're working in like web three blockchain technology, um, there's this whole thing about like scarcity and rarity and how that has an impact on value. Mm -hmm. And when you limit the number of pieces that a person can bring to a clothing swap, it automatically like modifies the supply side and increases Mm -hmm. the value of the demand. And it's just, that's a really good way of um, making sure that people bring their best stuff. That's cool. Yeah. And I think the uh, antique and vintage industry itself is just, you know, scarcity and rarity. So when people finally jump on board to that, oh my gosh, I think they love it, especially if they have their own personal style. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I agree. I mean, I, I don't want to go too deep into this because I talk about this a lot, kind of debunk this myth that the rise in the popularity of shopping secondhand has ruined secondhand for everyone and it's not fair and we're taking all the clothes out of the thrift store. I mean, we've already addressed that there's ample to go around, Mm -hmm. but especially uh, you two, Natalie and Crystal, do you ever get pushback like that from people? 
Like what exactly? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're selling vintage or you're upcycling. Mm-hmm. You're taking it out of the hands of people who really need it. You're like ruining the thrift no. stores. That kind of <laughs> Honestly, thing. there's I. So I had a personal experience. Um, having to clear up my grandfather's house and there's a whole nother industry, which is junk haulers and (laughs) it's insanity. I mean, they're, the clothes are just literally put into bags and sent to the dump. So there is more than enough for everyone. And there's good stuff probably in all those bags that are going to the dump. So Mm -hmm. what needs to happen is like more people, probably the, you know, secondhand dealers need to tap into that market. How do you access that stuff? So I don't think there's any, like, nothing's running out. There's definitely more than enough. And there's so many different avenues you could find it, especially in, you know, California. And the city is, like, yeah, ample, ample secondhand materials that are out there. No, but people, I think people are really uh, appreciative that we are, reper- you know, like, People have brought their their family heirlooms, like you know, quilts that their grandfather or had in their house, or their grandmother. Um, like I said, there's a lot of sentimentality surrounded with what we do. So, um, and especially because we've made so many clothes with vintage rice bags and flower bags and feed bags, this like uh, people really uh, it really resonates with them, and it really um, I, I, makes them really feel. You know, so so I think it's been a really good reception. We've never had anybody saying that we're, you know, taking, taking all the vintage. And there there is so like Natalie said, it's 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 endless. Um, so it's interesting to think about how much the like nostalgia associated with a particular item can uh, add to its value. Um, right. I I think when when manufacturing was effectively offshore domestically and everything that's coming out of factories is effectively the same thing. It might be a different color or a different shape or a different style, but everything that comes out of these mass market factories is effectively fabric plastic in a different shape or size. We really lost some of that kind of like human touch element to it. And Mm -hmm. I think when we, when we consider vintage items or secondhand items, there's a real opportunity to reposition and rebrand. This is not secondhand clothing. This is something from the archive. This is Mm -hmm. something that has led a life experience before it came to your hands that imbues that physical object with a, a human touch that we have, you know, kind of outsourced effectively. Um, Mm. I love the idea of blending physical objects and, and technology to be able to like scan a garment and see the life that it has lived before it arrived to you. Um, it just really turns the concept of value on its head because no longer Mm -hmm. are we looking at a physical object and saying, okay, this has value because it's made out of this or it looks like this. It's like, this has value because like, look at all the cool things that this object did before it came to me. That's what I love about the vintage and antique industry and the knowledge, the wealth of knowledge that these dealers and pickers have. It's a lifetime of research. So it's, it's really, it's a beautiful thing to understand something, some history for any one piece of clothing or textile. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that like Gen Z is leading the trend on that. You know, we see um, resale websites obviously gaining in popularity. Depop was purchased by Etsy in June of last year for mm -hmm. $1.6 billion in a mo mostly cash deal. Like Gen Z, they don't have the hangups and reserva reservations about secondhand clothing the way that boomers or even Gen X did. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. It's really, really cool. It makes me very excited about the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it makes me very optimistic. So, you know, we're coming down the home stretch now. I thought we could just take a moment for each of you to talk about what you've done in the world of circularity of in sustainability at your current job that you're most proud of and why? Hmm. Uh, I would say just the, the custom of experience I'm most proud of because I've been able to just meet so many people and, 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 and a lot of them have become like uh, friends or creative collaborators. So um that has been a, a real joy and something that um, I like to keep my feet on the ground and work in my community. And, and, and um, so that's been very fulfilling for me to, you know, I, I, I yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I hear you on that. For me, it is, it's very community people focused. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just, that's who I am as, as an individual. Mm -hmm. And so making those connections and building those relationships brings me some of the greatest joy. Absolutely. Right. And, and knowing that we're making them something that is going to last forever and that they can pass on to their, their children, you know, if they have children. <laughs> I think for me, you know, this, this jump into tech from what had previously been a traditional fashion uh, career is um, equally exciting and terrifying. Mm. And as I'm working with software engineers to develop our prototype platform, I think what I'm most excited about is actually getting it into the hands of consumers. So, you know, right now, blockchain technology and NFTs is at the very emerging stages of consumer adoption, but huge corporations and huge industry leaders in a variety of sectors are investing in this protocol. And what we're going to see is consumers becoming more comfortable with the technology adoption as we go along through time. And wh whereas the, the prototype is going to be tested by people who, you know, they have crypto wallets and they understand the concept of NFTs. And that in and of itself is a tiny community right now. I mm -hmm. think that as, um, you know, blockchain technology continues to expand, it kind of goes back to the same thing that you guys were talking about. I'm excited about building a community. I'm excited about actually interacting with humans that mm -hmm. see the benefit of what we're trying to do and be able to hear their feedback and really tailor the experience to their value system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Agreed. Um, for me, I am very, um, I think the thing that I'm most proud of or just very excited is that we've been able to, you know, create systems that do address a lot of at scale on uh, the damage inventory, right, that cannot be resolved. Mm -hmm. 
because that's a mm-hmm. huge percentage of inventory. And mm-hmm. not only at a private company like Eileen Fisher, you know, but like really create a company that is going to be able to offer these at, you know, as a service for multiple brands. So I'm just more into the system, designing systems, right, for, uh, for mm-hmm. solutions for these type of clothing. So just mm-hmm. avoiding them to go directly to the landfill or other countries. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think all of you should be really proud and the impact that you're making in your day-to-day work. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having thank you, Amanda. us. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you, Amanda. A pleasure. Nice to meet you all. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of April, St. Evans is supporting United Farm Workers Foundation, mobilizing farm workers and their organizations across the country to advocate for more equitable policies. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love 
and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. Thanks to all of the guests on today's episode, Carmen, Crystal, Natalie, Lacey, and of course, Laura. Thank you for working through technical issues and everything else and listening to my feverish questions, literally. I'll share all the places you can find them in the show notes. Please give them all a follow and see all the stuff they're working on. And while you cannot attend the reworked summit IRL, even I'm not going, there will be virtual opportunities. And additionally, if you live in or near New York City, please check out the reworked Makers Market, which is happening on June 4th and 5th in Williamsburg. Lots, and I mean lots, of your favorite upcycling designers will be there. You can find out more on Instagram at Reworked Market. Okay, I'm going to go finish packing, water the plants, all the things I need to do before I leave town. And of course, feel sad about my lack of smell and taste. Hopefully by the next time you hear from me, I'll be tasting up a storm again. I'll be smelling all the smells, good and bad. And of course, I will be back next week with a regular episode. Bye. (laughs) 